Going deeper. My name is Marcy Sklove, and today my guest is Jules Shemetsky. Some of you might have seen Jules's interview that was replayed recently with Isaac Ben Ezra. It's from 2011. But today we are going to uh, touch on some other parts of, of Jules's life. So, Jules was born in Brooklyn, New York in 1928. His parents were Jewish immigrants his father from Russia, and his mother from Poland. And they were both Yiddish speakers and working-class people. Uh, Jules is an accomplished professor, author, editor, and was a key player in creating several institutions that are still thriving today. He joined the faculty of the English department at UMass in 1958 and in 1959 launched the first edition of the Massachusetts Review, a literary magazine that is still thriving today. Um, he was a central figure in establishing the Union for the Faculty at UMass and director of the Institute for Advanced Study in the Humanities, IOSH. His latest book, is called Out of Brownsville, Encounters with Nobel Laureates and Other Jewish Writers, a Culture Memoir. And that's just about four years old now. Hard to believe, but the paperback only came out last year. Uh, okay. <laughs> well. And the paperback is available at the Adams uh, Bookshop <laughs> and for UMass Press. There we go, plugging and it right gotta away. Got to get a plug. UMass Press, which is a wonderful press. Yeah. So, Jules, um, I often start my interviews by asking, what about your early life? Oh. <laughs> uh, can you tell us that not just experiences you had growing up or anything, but how that informed both your love of literature and your kind of moving in that direction professionally, but also the social justice work that you've done throughout the years? Well, that's a big question. It's a big question. <laughs> and a question. very good one. I have, to, I have to search my memory. I, uh, I started being political around the age of 12, I think. I uh, distributed leaflets in my district for a, a woman who was running for local council. Mm -hmm. Beatty Markowitz. Uh -huh. She was part of the team of uh, the f one of the few Jewish congressmen, if not the first, named Emanuel Seller hmm. from Brooklyn. And he was our representative. And this, she was part of his team. They think about leaflets. And at 14, I heard a, a socialist speaker on a street corner during the 1942 election. When Governor, I don't want to go into too much detail, but Governor Lehman, mm -hmm. Herbert H. Lehman, was running for governor for the third time, I think. And there's a man on the street corner from the Socialist Party who looked like and sounded like Bernie Sanders. <laughs> and uh, he didn't quite make all the gestures, but he yeah. was very much like saying one of the a telling thing he told me, he remarked was, I know your parents and all of you are going to be for Herbert Lehman, but I want you to reflect on the fact that 
that he goes to worship is the Fifth Avenue Temple Emmanuel, which is for the very wealthy. Oh. And he said, think of your, your parents where they go. I said, yeah, I thought of my small, unpretentious. That's so interesting. He was making <laughs> was the, the, the class system. The first time I, I thought about the class system within right. my ethnicity. Right, right. And, uh, and at 14, I was also a freshman at Brooklyn Tech, where I loved the mathematics that they taught us, especially plain geometry. And one day I was in, in my synagogue outside looking around. I said, gee, the world is full of angles and circles and planes, and it's lawful. And mm. it doesn't care whether I smoke a cigarette or not yeah. on Saturday. Uh -huh. And I think that was, a, I became a Spinozan without knowing the Spinoza until wow. I got to college. Yeah. But that was my orientation, and I began to read a lot. And I went to a good high school, mm -hmm. Brooklyn Tech, and uh, I read avidly. And uh, there was a, well, I read in the 40s, was it, yeah, the 40s, during the war years, Second World War, my brother was abroad in a mm -hmm. crack infantry regiment, 16th Infantry of the 1st Division. And uh, while I was worried about him all the time, I was also having guilt because I was enjoying myself, oh, I was playing yeah. basketball and reading a lot. And I remember reading Richard Wright's uh, Native Son, mm -hmm. Michael Gold's Jews Without Money, hmm. and uh, a few other books of that. Uh, Johnny Got His Gun, hmm. Dalton Trumper, which made me a pacifist. But all these wow. books were in the window on the main street in Brownsville yeah. of a guy who had a stationery shop, and he had these books in the window. So and he was I, pretty radical. He was guy. pretty radical, because yeah. then I learned, I got to know his daughter, who also went to Brooklyn College. And she said, oh, yes, he was, he was a 1905-er. Mm. You know, that was the Russian Revolution of 1905, yeah. which was very idealistic, and uh, people were very... Uh, devoted to their ideals. ideals. Yeah. But anyway, he also did time in Siberia and so on. Wow. So it, it was around me and, uh, yeah. And for, well, what in the home, like what, with your parents and uh, your brother growing up, like what were, did you grow up in an Orthodox home? Yes, it was Orthodox. And but, Yiddish was your first language? I doubt that it was, but I, I knew it. I mean, it was yeah. my brother's because he was eight years older than me. Okay. So he, when he went to school, he didn't speak English, but I did. So it's But possible. I was mixed. It was mixed. But it's possible that one can grow up in an Orthodox Jewish home and not be politicized. What yeah. about it? Well, it was a very, very, you know, World War II and yeah. the 30s, I mean, the Depression. Uh, I mean, many factors require a three-volume mm -hmm. history. But I mentioned Lehman. Politics was a nice, it was a good thing in those days, <laughs> especially in New York. We had great people in office. We had a wonderful mayor, Fiorello LaGuardia, mm -hmm. one honest mayor <laughs> New York had <laughs> until that time. Yeah. We had a Governor was decent, Lehman, even though he's a member of the Lehman Brothers family bank. Uh -huh, uh -huh. We had a great uh, Senator Wagner, uh, Robert Wagner, uh, hmm. 
and he was a liberal Catholic and wonderful. He developed the Labor Relations Act, freed labor. We had a President Roosevelt, who mm -hmm. we regarded as yeah. a god. Yeah. So here are those people that you could look up to. Sure. So politics was was a was a nice good thing, unlike now, right. in a way. Right, right, I right. I mean, except until Obama came along. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was something. In 1948, I was 20. I supported Henry Wallace, the American. Uh, Labor Party supporter. And you also joined the NAACP that year, didn't you? No, I, I joined it uh, at the University of Minnesota in 1950. <coughs> okay, that was 50. Yeah, yeah, when I was in graduate school. No, I was in college. I didn't belong to anything. And uh, I did work with the American Labor Party because they had tickets for this big rally for Wallace. And I was a captain in one little section. I couldn't vote then. It was, you had to be sure. 21. And I thought, 50,000 people were in Yankee Stadium. And uh, the uh, great Paul Robeson sang, Pete wow. Seeger sang. Yeah. It was really quite an occasion. Yeah. And then it poured rain. Oh, my goodness. So everybody had to go home. They all came back the next night, 50,000 huh. people. I said, wow, this is quite a movement. This is yeah. wonderful. And then, of course, that's about all the people in New York who voted for Wallace. Oh, funny. <laughs> he lost big. Yeah. So it was a good education. Huh. Don't, don't look at the crowds. <laughs> right, right. Alone. Yeah. Anyway, I was political, but not a member of anything until uh, I got to uh, graduate and school. And then, jumping forward a little bit, but during the McCarthy oh, yeah. period, you were questioned, weren't you? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, they let you go, though, right? Uh, let me. Who's the they? <laughs> well, no, I was never. I was not formally charged by yeah. any government institution, okay. but some woman, I think a little bit deranged, mm. uh, was in front of the Senate committee and named 24, 26 people from Minneapolis. Uh, two of us were teaching assistants at the university, <laughs> and I was editor of a very radical journal called Faulkner Studies, <laughs> yeah. hardly. But I had been a member of the Labor Youth League for about six months, and, that's, uh, and at the same time, I was in the NAACP. Yeah. And I worked with a, a subcommittee within the, with two wonderful black women. Three of us were subcommittee that were pushing a Fair Employment Practices Act. We got wow. signatures in the student union and so on. Uh, and it was the, Minneapolis, Minnesota was the first state, I believe, that passed the Fair Employment Practices Act. Really? So that, and I wrote cool. leaflets you know, for them and one against the execution of a black man in the South named Willie McGee. Mm -hmm. So I got active in NAACP in those yeah. years and sent money to Montgomery, bus strike, and so on. And so I was, you know, up front. And there was demonstrations against the firing of a black philosophy professor. Mm. And uh, I was involved in that. So, yeah. so you were I, active. I so. got named by with this other guy. And the university set up, God bless them, a, a star committee of chairmen mm. from left to right. I mean, people were wearing their American Legion buttons. Yeah. And, but the head of it was in law school. And they went, we, we had a, hearings 
I have copies of it. I should show it sometime. Mm -hmm. For a couple of months, I thought they were going to lose my job. And I, we just had married and had one kid. And was, mm. I said, well, we'll maybe I'll drive a truck or a taxi or we'll go to Mexico or something or England. And, uh, but they paid, they, they, uh, thank goodness for being in law school, there were like 10 items in the Minnesota Bureau of Investigation, hmm. all palpably false. Yeah. And he knew it. He read it. He was oh, a professional. Wow. So, the, so the administration at the university backed you up. Yes. It That's was great. Wonderful. Yeah. Well, partly they dragged it out because they were expecting McCarthy to come into the state. Okay. And uh, soon. And so they dragged it out. And that, what saved us all, they were nervous, yeah. was the Army McCarthy hearing. Okay. And that was his downfall. So oh. he never came in. Oh, wow. So it, it liberated people. Yeah. It was an it interesting, was interesting time, times. to say the least. Yeah. But then I took my doctoral examinations. I did very well in it, my German exam. Mm -hmm. And they promoted me. Oh, they were very great. good to me. That's um, so this was 1954, and I stayed there till 56 as a full instructor, which is always like an assistant professor. Rank. Wow. Okay, so... I, in my researching and preparing for the interview, I was trying to kind of get a sense, not just of you and your accomplishments, which are many, but also the times that you were living in and what, what you brought to the, you know, to the table in that way. So I found these two articles, one from 68 and one from 72, um, and Let's see. The first one was just about, and it, and it's it shows up again in Brownsville. Just you're shining the light on the Jewish American voice in literature, and what was going on, you know, in terms of these people who had come in and and their assimilation or their acculturation to U.S. and what they were contributing in terms of the, the, the field of literature. Can you talk a little bit about, about that? Period? What was the article called? Uh, oh, you're going to ask me that. Um, I'm not sure. The second article was called Our Decentralized Literature, ah. a Consideration of Regional, Ethnic, Racial, and Sexual Factors. Oh, the other one was perhaps... Uh, that might was it? ring a bell for the other one. Yeah, I yeah. should know the name of it, but I was just well, excited. The, uh, the, the uh, assimilation of the American Jewish writer. That's that's it. Yeah, that's it. That's interesting. Those are two interesting articles. Um, this, yeah, the first one was um, I did a little kind of um, survey of some cr critical passages in. Three generations of Jewish writers mm -hmm. in America. Mm -hmm. First was Abraham Kahn, about whom I wrote a book later, uh, who was the editor of the Jewish Daily Forward, which is a socialist, democratic, social democratic paper. Uh, he was a big anti-communist after 1921, so, uh, but a very influential figure. So I started with him and his, uh, his for uh, where uh, man. Uh, Rise of David Levinsky, an immigrant comes, 
to America. Mm -hmm. And it's the story of this immigrant's procedure to, through American life. Okay, yeah. And it's a, considered by some one of the best immigrant novels we have wow. in English. The second was Writers of the 30s. So I did... Uh, uh, Is this the one I, I know think, better? Ward, uh, George Washington Cable, Abraham Cohen? No, that's the second article. That's the that, second that, article. Okay, now, this yeah. one was uh, uh, the playwright, the left-wing playwright Clifford Odets, Awake and Sing. And the third was uh, Saul Bellow. So I said yeah. from... And that with Bellow, you had the maturing of the... The first, uh, the guy looks at the Statue of Liberty and he's fascinated and everything. Uh, and he... he this the is the story that he's written, the, the first story you're talking about? Yeah, okay. the story Rise of Devinsky. And then the second, the play, Awake and Sing, which is being revived often, which was done recently mm. again, Odette was a very good left-wing playwright at the, of the 30s. Mm -hmm. And he has an old grandfather who's always playing records of classical music, a retired barber. Mm -hmm. But he has one of, of uh, Maya Beer's Africana, where mm -hmm. the guy looks out at Africa and says, oh, brave new world, or worse mm -hmm. to that effect. Mm -hmm. You know, and it's really about America, yeah. basically. And uh, the third is, uh, it's Bello talking about his parents and oh each one has something about mother yeah and the first one is uh, mother so and so and mother but with Bello you get mama mm -hmm. and, mm -hmm. he, and he creates her almost like a Greek goddess hmm. but he's not, he's not um, not shy about acknowledging his ethnic background yeah in a way, he's not, he's assimilated. So that changed for Jews, right? I mean, when, was there a time when Jews were more quiet about their ethnic background and, oh, yeah, you know, fearful oh, of sure. anti Semitism? Yeah. And yeah, yeah, of course there was. And uh, there were, you know, there was anti Semitism in the Civil War, even mm -hmm. though there were a lot of Jewish soldiers. And in, in the 90s, uh, hotels were, had to be opened. Even among the elite, you mean to, to allow Jews to allow in. Jews to come in yeah. uh, to luxury hotels in the mountains or uh, in Saratoga, the famous cases, um, and uh, changes of name were prominent. Certainly, mm -hmm. Hollywood is evidence of that. Sure. So many Jew Jewish Americans had to change their names if they wanted to be actors. Yeah. You know, J John Garfield was Julius Garfinkel, hmm. wow. and, uh, and Edward G. Robinson was something Rosenberg, and so on. Yeah. And Paul Muni was Muni Weisenfreund, oh, so, <laughs> and God knows how many others. You know, yeah. there, there are whole books written about that. Sure. So that has changed for the better, in my view, much yeah. better. And people now, Barbara Streisand, I think, was a great breakthrough mm -hmm. artist in that respect, if we want to talk about the arts. Yeah. But uh, the whole situation, well, but you have to, I have to point out, as I did in my classes, until the end of the Second World War, the majority of Jews were working class. Mm -hmm. It was only after the war, with the opening up of colleges, the GI Bill, I mean, I got into college, uh, free college. Uh, yeah. 
that uh, who rode the wave of American prosperity. Yeah. And after the war, it was all this pent-up energy in the from the Depression years, when it was hard to get a job. And my brother enlisted in the regular army yeah. because he couldn't get a job that paid more than nine dollars a week. Did he survived? Right. He survived very arduous, difficult campaigns yeah. in Africa Gosh. and in Sicily. Barely, became he was a platoon leader. He got a couple of citations. And Did so. he come back pretty yeah, emotionally and psychologically? I think he was, okay. but we didn't call it post-traumatic. Right. But he, had he heard airplanes at night yeah. and bombings. Yeah. I heard him once. We had a bed to a bed. We, before we got married, he, he cried out in his sleep. The, the crosses are coming, which is the Luftwaffe wow. Messerschmitts. I'm, I'm thinking of this photograph that we'll show, um, and your mother, it, it's the family, and your mother is holding a, a portrait, a photograph of your, your brother. And a soldier, yeah. Yeah. And, well, there were several yeah. uh, relatives. They had, I had cousins in the Army and in yeah. the Coast Guard and in the Navy. And, yeah, one cousin, graduate of City College, but he put him in the infantry, and he became yeah. a master sergeant. Went through all of Europe, wow. from uh, so, after Normandy right to Berlin. Yeah. So um, I want to get to the second article because I have this. Um, I'm looking to see if we should wait till part two. But let's get started, and okay. we'll see. Second article is interesting. Yeah. <laughs> and so I I took a quote from the abstract of the article. And I don't want to get too bogged down in the in the four uh, authors that you're speaking about, but more what you say later. But I'll read I'll read it as it as it's written. The considerable reputation that George Washington Cable, Abraham Kahan, Charles Chestnut, and Kate Chopin Kate Chopin Chopin yeah. the old way Chopin enjoyed toward the end of the century was and often still is based on their being classified as regional and local color writers. This, and this is the sentence. This designation, however, served to ignore or minimize their true concerns, which went to the heart of the changing America's dilemmas. The racial grounds of the tragic, of the Southern tragedy, the stakes involved in the acculturation of immigrant populations, the assertion of the black ethos, and the terms of woman's entrapment within our cultural assumptions. Pretty good. <laughs> Pretty darn good. Well, I mean, you totally nail <laughs> the, the problems that continue to plague our country today. Uh, that's a long time ago, but you know how that happened? I'll take one minute, if I may. Yeah, we, you've got about five. I okay, think. good. I was teaching in Berlin. I had been invited as a guest professor to the Kennedy Institute of North American Studies in what was then West Berlin. The wall was still up. Mm -hmm. sure. And I was invited to give the keynote address at the uh, German American Studies Institution or whatever, uh, association, German mm -hmm. uh, American Studies. And I gave the keynote address. And one of the assistant professors in that audience then became the full professor at the Kennedy Institute after I left. Mm -hmm. 
and years later he told me, you know, that was the most influential essay hmm. in Germany for 10 years. Oh, my gosh. He says it changed the whole course That's of the way they regarded American literature. Wow. That's what he said, and he was a full professor at the Kennedy Institute sure. for many years. Very well-known guy. Anyway, uh, I gave the talk, and um, I told him, I wish you had told me at the time. <laughs> but anyway, yeah. uh, it went over pretty well. But And the talk was based on this, this kind of sentence. Yeah. It, it was, was this it was, work. That was in the okay. piece. Yeah. And I went through all of them. And I got the title, uh, Decentralized Literature, was actually a title I got from William Dean Howells mm -hmm. of the late 19th century, a writer very few people read or know about. But he, but he was a great friend of Mark Twain <laughs> and Henry James. He was a great editor yeah. of The Atlantic and then an editor at Harper's. Very influential, great many novels, and he became the dean of American letters. Mm -hmm. As somebody once, re I think maybe Bellow once remarked, if a foreign dignitary arrived on the port, like Gorky, came to America, old Howells was out there on a boat to meet him. Uh -huh. We don't have that kind of culture anymore. No, But no. He, uh, he, he, he talked about our decentralized literature, and he welcomed in the uh, Immigrant writers like Kahn, mm -hmm. and women writers, and Mark Twain, all people who are sort of outsiders. Sure. He welcomed them into the club, so that was nice. Yeah. That's, I, I was really, really moved by reading that. And, well, thank and you. knowing that you were a person who was sort of, you know, you, you weren't creating this situation, obviously, but you were shining a light on it in a way that changed, it feels like it changed the way others, as you say in Germany, t talked and thought about um, literature and bringing in all the different kinds of Americans. Right, thank yeah. you, yeah, you got yeah. it, you got it. And interestingly enough, those two articles you mentioned were published in German, a German Jahrbuch for American Studies, huh. not in America. Oh, really? <laughs> so I was a little ahead of my time. Was it? Was it? Uh, in any way, did you get backlash at UMass? During, no. For that? No. no. Got, they left you. Got they, credit. For you it. got credit. Yeah. No, but at time I I was a full professor in 1968. Right. So you could. I could do what out. I wanted, yeah. and I was had been editing the Mass Review for right. since 1959. So. Right. So I had a little status within my own little world of the Mass of. The English department. No, that didn't worry me. But, but the journals of the day, unlike Mass Review, were still stuck in the in a rut. One of the impulses behind founding the Review for some of us was to break out of the mode of formalism and bring in history, sociology, politics, more interdisciplinary, interdisciplinary American studies, like. Uh, view of things, even though I didn't major in American studies. Yeah. Paradoxically, I did my dissertation on the English Renaissance. Yeah, right. <laughs> but I went to the American Renaissance as soon as I could. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay, this is really great. And um, I have a lot more to ask you, but we are winding down for part one. So I want to thank, thank you, and we'll take a break now, and we'll see you all for part two. Thank you. Thank you.